Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. We have learned in passing in these podcasts about several prominent black Seminoles of the Second Seminole War. Front and center among these has been Abraham, John Caesar, and John Horse. We have caught some fleeting glimpses of each of these individuals. Today, however, we shall hear from an author who penned a historical novel titled John Horse, Florida's First Freedom Fighter. Betty Terso weaves his story around actual events of the Second Seminole War. Joining us today to discuss this novel and the Seminole involved in the fight is Betty Terso. Betty, welcome to the Seminole Wars. Thank you, and I'm very glad to be here. In your book, are all the characters actual people who lived in Florida and fought for, or both? Yes, I, I add a fictional character. Um, that's why I don't exactly call it historical fiction, because that is generally around a fictional character. I like to call this accurate historical fiction, because I wanted to portray the characters and the story as close to history as possible. What background did you bring to this project? Oh, I'm, I'm an English teacher. I have a master's in English and postgraduate work in creative writing. I've been teaching English for 27 years, and just a general interest in history. My parents moved us here in 1970, and the first things we did was tour the local historical venues, the Biden Museum, the things down in Miami. It's just an interest. And where did you get your interest about the Seminole? Well, I, I picked up a book called Black Seminoles by Kenneth Porter. It's a University of Florida Press, and the story was basically the story of John Horse and the Black Seminoles. And it was fascinating, but it's written on more of a dissertation level. And so I wanted to bring the story to, more to the youth of Florida, to give them a sense of place, a sense of history. You know, I keep hearing Florida has no history. Well, Florida is rich in history. And the Black Seminoles are a big part of that. Is this why you took the historical novel approach as opposed to just a fictional novel about people in that time frame? Exactly. My uh, my best friend at the time, Doreen Talbert, I had given her the book. She's a black woman who was born in Honduras. She has since passed, sadly. And um, she called me up one day and she said, instead of writing about bears in the woods, we need to write about John Horse for children. And I said, oh, okay. So that's what we did. So we basically traveled around the state to all of the sites just to kind of pick up what we could pick up. We talked to the different park um, personnel and whatnot at the different places. And I researched. Um, there's a wonderful website called johnhorse.com that has a, the whole rebellion on it. I have an entire library of seminal books researching this book. And so, yes, I wanted it to be accurate for the youth of Florida. Who is the intended audience for this book? Young adults. Um, I wrote it as a, it's, it's more of like a fifth, sixth, seventh grade level. 
But with the reading scores in Florida, I have used it in my high school. I've given it away to two or three hundred kids in my high school because it's really an emergent reader level. So my intended audience was really um, the minority youth to give them a hero, a sense of place. Almost as, you know, that was the issue with the gangs is they want to belong. So this was sort of an attempt to give them something to a history to belong to. Betty, I mean this in a good way, but it's easy to read. Oh, thank you. I intended that, but... <laughs> I mean, because it gets right. It has it has interesting stories. Um, the flow is uh, fast-paced for folks, and uh, lots happens. Well, you know, John Horace was the... Um, he was such an amazing character, and he was a likable character. People liked him. Even the Army Chronicles do not speak badly of John Horst. That's I, I took the story of the turtles um, and used that as a jumping-off point. Yes, and we'll discuss that in just a moment. What I wanted to establish first, Betty, is, is how you approached the dialogue that you used. Now, some of the dialogue is actually quoted from Army Chronicles. So, you know, it, I spent a lot of years researching this because all the documents tend to be from the Army and the American point of view. And I wanted to turn it around to be from John Horse's point of view. So most of what Osceola says is documented in the book. Um, the rest of it, I imagine, you know, you read the things about the events. And so I just kind of tried to imagine what they would be thinking. There's lots of information on their personalities, so you can kind of, I kind of turn it around and have it come back from them, what they would say, what they would be thinking. Right. What liberties did you find were necessary to take with the actual historical record? Well, to make the story flow, there are a couple holes, like his mother. We don't know who she was. It also appears that he had a family prior to the one in the book. Because the one in the book, he really didn't meet her and marry her until after he had gone to the Indian Territory and then came back as an interpreter for the Army. And that's when he met and married um, his wife. So I kind of just inserted her in the place of the first wife because we know nothing about her and nothing about the family. We assume they probably died from fever or whatever, something. We don't. We just don't know. Seola's wife. Seola's wife. You know, there's there's some controversy on to whether her, she was actually kidnapped. But there's so much documentation that she was, but then there's a lot that says no, that was made up by abolitionists to, to gather, you know, um, sympathy. So, but it was such a good story, and she was at his deathbed in Carolina, so I don't know. So those are the only two things we're not sure about. Everything else in the book is documented in the history. Uh, there's the story of Mrs. Godfrey. And surely that wasn't John Horst. But I wanted to put that in there to show that there was some humanity on the part of, of the Seminoles. They, they, you know, because, I don't know, as written as a child's book, I, was, I left out a lot of the violence, a lot of the alcohol, a lot of, you know, people say I should write this as an adult book because there's, like, so much alcohol so much violence. John Horse's best friend, Kawakuchi Wildcat, used to get drunk and sell the black Seminoles, and then he would steal them back. He just wanted to keep drinking. You know, things like that that I didn't put in a children's book. You state the Florida Wars, as they're known in Florida, as opposed to, say, the Second Seminole War, uh, were about more than displacement and relocation of the Indian Seminole. 
They were about slavery. Why do you say that? Well, because the whole reason Andrew Jackson invaded, which started the first Seminole War, was to stem the flow of enslaved Africans running away to Florida. Florida was actually the first underground railroad, and we never studied that. I didn't study that as a child. And um, he didn't want that to keep happening. So that was the whole point of invading Spanish Florida, to stop the stem of the enslaved Africans escaping. They escaped to Florida because of something called the Spanish Edict of 1693. How did that inadvertently contribute to one cause of the Seminole Wars, this slavery aspect? Well, King Charles II, I think, he um, issued an edict that any enslaved African could gain freedom if they baptized Catholics and fought for the crown. So, as a result, they, many of the enslaved Africans came into Florida. And what they did was they hooked up with the very remnants of the indigenous people that were here, and the Red Stick Creeks had come south to avoid the Creek Wars. That's when Osceola came into Florida. So they all kind of hooked up and became the Seminole. You know, the Seminole didn't really exist before all of this. There were five civilized tribes. And this is who Jackson was, was targeting, the Chickasaw, the Choctaw, the Creek, the Cherokee, and the Seminole, which were made up of the Miccosukee, the Red Stick Creek, the escaped enslaved Africans, whatever indigenous people might have still survived from the European invasion. And they all came together and became the Seminole. Why do you call the Second Seminole War the largest slave uprising in U.S. history up to that point? Well, because it actually was. <laughs> Um, between 1835 and 1838, um, the black Seminoles had recruited the slaves along the east coast of Florida. And on the day of the Dade Massacre, which was like the last week of December in 1835, a lot of the slaves burned the plantations and fled to join the Seminoles. Now, this was kind of co covered up. At the height of the the slave rebellion, they estimate that 385 slaves fought alongside the Seminoles. Of course, the southern plantations didn't want their slaves to hear about this. So we really kind of squelched this history. And also, you know, in defense, the Alamo was going on at about the same time. That was taking headlines. But they burned all the plantations on the East Coast and joined them. And that's one of the amazing things. Now, things didn't go so well. A lot of them preferred to go back because living in the scrub of Florida isn't exactly comfortable. But, it, you know, it was the largest slave rebellion. Um, it's very well documented. And the black Seminoles recruited them. John Caesar was kind of their leader. You know, he was up in North Florida. Why did you choose John Horse as your protagonist? And who was John Horse? He was born one uh, John Cavallo. His father was um, Charles Cavallo, a Seminole Indian. His mother was obviously an escaped enslaved African because of his skin color. He was just such a an amazing character. And the little the thing with the gopher turtles that we're going to talk about was just such a little grabber. You know that little story is amazing. He fought all his life to keep his people free. That's what his whole motive was. And so. To me, he was the hero. Um, he rode with Osceola, Wildcat Kawakuchi. It was his best friend. Um, he was just a very likable character. I just fell in love with the character of John Horse. Why do you call John Horse Florida's first freedom fighter? 
because that that was his own motivation in fighting the Americans was to keep his people free. In Spanish Florida, they were free. In fact, John Horse was born in Spanish Florida, so he was technically born free. But then the slaveholders have a way of saying, you know, bloodlines, and we own all the bloodlines and all this nonsense. His whole motivation was to keep his people free. And when he took them west, it was because Jessup offered freedom. But then, you know, that didn't go so well because the slavers kept invading and stealing. His sister lost two of her children to slavery, and they never recovered. They never found them again. We mentioned earlier he was called John Caballo, which is a Spanish word for horse. And so we anglicize it. We say John Horse. But they also know him as the nickname Gopher John. So now we can let our listeners know how he got the nickname Gopher John. When John was little, probably about 11 or 12, he was living east of Tampa in, a, in his father's village. Colonel Brooks was in charge of the fort there, and he loved gopher turtle. And one day, John Horace had a couple gopher turtles. And he said, how much? Well, of course, as a young boy, he had no concept. He said, two bits. So the colonel flipped him a quarter and took the turtles, gave him to his cook and said, put him out back in my tent of rails. And then he said to John, bring me turtles every day. I want to have an officer's feast. Well, whether John was just unable to find them or whatever, all he did was steal back those two turtles and resell them every day. After a week, he got caught because there were only two turtles in the pen. And, and he would tell that story when he was an adult and laugh about it. And so that was the story that I thought was the hook for the youth. The fact that he kept, you know, stealing back the turtles and reselling them, we go from there. It was actually Colonel Brook who gave him the moniker Gopher John. And um, he, he ended up growing up and being the leader of the Black Seminole faction of the Seminoles, fought for freedom, took his people west, ended up taking them to Nazi Manto, Mexico, where some of his descendants still live today. Now you adapt John Horse to be the seminal involved in a sparing of the life of a Mrs. Godfrey and her children during a bloody raid. That happened. It was during the, the rebellion. She ran with her children to the, to the swamp and hid out there. Well, she was nursing a child, but with no water or anything after a few days. And she was so afraid the child would cry and give them away. Because, I mean, the Seminoles were bloody. They would have massacred them all right there. Well, an escaped slave, I would assume, found them, and he was bringing them provisions. And then when he said it wasn't safe anymore, he kind of led them to where they could see the lights of St. Augustine. And so she got to go there and was saved. And the only reason I put it in the book, well, it's a true story. Mrs. Godfrey, you know, freely shared the story. She didn't know who her savior was. And I just wanted to show the humanity and, and John Horse would have done that. John Horse was a kind person. He was he had a sense of humor. He would have he would have done that. And I wanted that event in the book to show the humanity of the Seminoles. And that's a good point because this story that you've written is about more than John Horse, although his name is at the top. He grew up to be one of the major forces in the success of the Seminoles during the Second Seminole War. He fought along with some quite notable figures for our listeners' ears, Osceola, Micanopi, Abraham, Alligator, and Wildcat. Who were these Seminoles? Well, they were compatriots of John Horse. Um, Osceola, you know, he was half 
Scottish, half Red Stick Creek. And that's really, you know, his story is just as fascinating. As they were coming to Florida, the only reason they weren't turned back and sent to Oklahoma or Arkansas, whatever they called it at the time, was because of the white relatives that were in the group. Osceola would have ended up in the Indian Territory as a boy had that not happened. So he came here, and he was actually friends with the whites. He, you know, he visited the, the forts, and everything was all happy. And then something changed. And I took it to be that they kidnapped his wife. I used that as the motivating factor for his change. And like I said, there's no definitive answer as to if that happened or if that didn't happen. You know, I have researched and researched and interviewed, and, and there's just, you know, some say it was made up by the the abolitionists, and some say it actually happened. But something happened that changed Osceola's attitude. So that would seem like a logical event. The rest of them were all Seminole chiefs, and Kawakichi was actually, which is Wildcat, he was actually um, Mikanobi's nephew. So he could, and, and I believe that's why he surrendered. He ended up surrendering at Fort Pierce. John Horace set it all up. And I believe he was going west because he expected to be the next principal chief. But then he lost the election and things didn't go so well. And that's when he and John Horace took their people and went to Mexico. And they um, were awarded land in everything they needed to defend the border from the American native tribe. We follow John Horse from his childhood fleeing General Andrew Jackson's soldiers through events leading to the start of the Second Seminole War and then some of the battles in it. Listeners unfamiliar with the Second Seminole War will get a nice primer from your book about the major operations in those years. Please give us a brief overview of what the war was all about. And well, like I said, it was really about slavery. It really was. Um, and even the, the Army soldiers, there's accounts in their diaries and whatnot of saying, why would anyone want this godforsaken, alligator-infested, mosquito-infested, swampy land? Well, it was because the slaves from the southern plantations were escaping into Florida. So what began the first Seminole War was Andrew Jackson invading Spanish Florida. I have that that's really the event that opens the book. I mean, obviously, I don't know who was it, but that was where John Horse was living at the time. So I say, well, obviously, the way the Seminoles, they were very family-oriented. So they would fight so that the women and children could escape. And once the women and children escaped, they would melt into the swamp. They were not a people who would fight a losing battle. They were smart fighters. They were guerrilla fighters. You know, we, had, we learned of that with the Vietnam War. Um, attack and escape, attack and escape. And then to boot, the Army had the American musket, rifles, whatever. The Seminoles purchased theirs from Cuba. So they had the Spanish rifles that had a longer range. So really, their method was to shoot and back up, shoot and back up. And when the bugle sounded for the charge, they just melted away. They weren't going to do a one-on-one combat if they didn't have to. And then they started negotiating. Of course, they changed the wording and told the Seminoles they were signing one thing when they were signing another thing. But the Seminoles never had any intention of leaving. They were never going to leave Florida. How they finally got most of them to go was they bribed them. Congress allocated $2 million to bribe the chiefs to leave. So that's basically the war. The Miccosukee, after the Battle of Okeechobee, they went down around the other side and they hit out 
in um, the middle of Florida for a long time. And then the Muskogee, you know, where Okeechobee is now, they were hidden out there. But the main force of Micanopy's people went west. So why did you conclude this after the Battle of Okeechobee? Because I was making it a Florida story. Now, there is a whole another life in Texas, Mexico, back to Florida, back to Texas, back to, you know, Mexico. There's a whole other story of John Horse after this. I was making this the Florida story. So that's why I ended it there, because I was really writing it for Florida history. You also wrote that Okeechobee was the decisive battle that essentially ended the Second Seminole War. The newspapers of the time called it a glorious victory for General Zachary Taylor. So explain the contradiction there. Well, basically, the Seminoles, you know, um, Kawakachi, John Horse, all of the comrades, they were locked up in um, the Castile de San Marcos in St. Augustine, and they escaped. And they went to the headwaters where Sam Jones, the Miccosukee chief, was organizing everything. And they prepared the battlefield. They sent out people to be captured to point where they were. So when um, Zachary Taylor and his troops got there, they were basically massacred. What happened was the Seminoles, they cut the sawgrass so that they would funnel them to their sharpshooters. And, of course, that's the way they came. Well, they had to come through a swamp, and as soon as they stepped out of the swamp, the Seminoles opened fire. They claimed victory because the Seminoles, you know, after the massacre, they just jumped in the boats and left. They they were in the middle of Lake Okeechobee by the time the army was going to charge them. They also captured horses and cattle and whatnot that the Seminoles had there. But the soldiers advanced across the prairie into the swamp, came out, 400 Seminoles opened fire. This went on for three hours. So many soldiers were either dead or wounded. And Taylor had to construct these little, you know, those little sled-like things they make behind the horses because most of his troops were wounded. So how they called this a victory when there was, like, almost no one alive, 160 men from the 4th Infantry were all mowed down. But Jessup, who was over here in, in Jupiter at the time, realized that he was never going to win this war if he didn't separate the blacks and the red. Because the red Seminoles were fighting for land and whatnot, but the black Seminoles were fighting for freedom. They were fighting for their families. So that's when he offered them freedom if they came in voluntarily and went with. And that's when John Horse took the off. But John Horse didn't stay long. He came back. Now, this is after my book. He came back as an interpreter, but clearly he was in contact with all his old buddies because he's the one that negotiated Kawakachi's surrender. That's when he married his wife. And so when Kawakachi surrendered, they all went to West again. John Horse took whoever he had with him and they went back. But things weren't going well because Kawakachi didn't win the election. The chief who, who did win it, he viewed the Black Seminoles as a money-making thing. So that's when John Horse picked up his people and went to Mexico and Kawakachi followed. What did you leave out of the Florida part? I mean, this is a Florida book, and we know that you left out Seminoles, the sequel, Oklahoma. But within the Florida story, what did you leave out that you wish you could have included? You know, there's so many stories with this war that is unbelievable. Um, like when Kawakachi surrendered, he was dressed as Hamlet. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. John Horace, they all were being chased to an island in the, the army, but I don't have all the details. The army surrounded them. 
and said, well, we're just going to starve you out. So every day for two or three weeks, they watched the cook fires burn. And then finally, the cook fires stopped burning. And so they made their way to the island, and there was only one elderly woman who had died. She had been lighting the fires. The Seminoles never stayed there for one second. It was amazing that they could pass these soldiers, and the soldiers never see them. You know, they, they were very good at moving through the swamp. Betty, what did you learn from researching and then writing this book? Mostly just the whole history of the Seminole Wars and the fact that, you no, know, our history is certainly not complete. They say the winners write just the history. Just the inhumanity of the army, of the arrogance of the U.S. government to say, okay, we're going to come here now, so you all just go west. When Andrew Jackson issued the edict to move them all west, that in itself is arrogant. You know, the Cherokee tried to fight in court, which, of course, they had no chance in, you know, white man's court. The rest of them went peacefully, but the Seminole fought. So the Cherokee fought in court, and the Seminole fought on the battlefield. And they are the unconquered people because they never surrendered. They were bribed to go west. How was your book received once it was published? Send it up to a Florida Association of Publishers, and it won a silver medal, which I was surprised. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I know it was written well enough. As an English teacher, I can judge that. And local people, you know, I've been in the newspaper several times. Mostly, I did write this book for education. I did not write this book because I thought it would be a great money maker or anything like that. And I, like I said, I've given away through 400 copies. A kid will say, Miss, you wrote a book, and I hand them the book. They'll read it. I'm happy. Um, I priced it on Amazon at the lowest possible price Amazon would let me price it. I self-published it. I sent it off to Pineapple Press, and they said it was too big a project. They would love to do it, but they couldn't handle the project. So that's when I self-published it, and there we go. It's always been well-received. I mean, I, I've lectured for the We Are Florida Black History Project at local libraries and bookstores, and I'm, it's really a labor of love on my part. It really is. I just want people to know who John Horse is. I want kids to have a hero, and that's why I wrote it. And a legitimate hero, not a made-up one. Right, right, right. Uh, Betty, you mentioned Amazon. So people going to Amazon can either get a hard copy or a soft copy, or they can get it for their Kindle. That's correct? Correct. And I want to add that I have written curriculum for this book. And so I've given the curriculum to any teacher that will take it. So if there's a teacher out there, that wants to teach this book, I will happily send the curriculum. You know, I'm not hoarding anything. This is, this is a, like I said, a gift, a labor of love. So, Betty, they can find you on Facebook, Betty Terso, but if they want to contact you by email, how would they do that? Oh, it's, I, you know, I never hide. It's just bterso at aol.com. Easy peasy. I also have posters, and I have a. I put together a second Seminole War timeline, which I would be happy to email to any of that stuff. Betty Terso, thanks for joining us for the Seminole Wars. Thank you. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep this show going. Visit our website at www.summonawars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Summon Wars Podcast.
The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted, the Seminole Wars Podcast 2020, all rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden, Roastem, provided by kind permission of Rita Youngman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman, all rights reserved.